Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Parentologist Podcast. It means so much to me that you are here. Today, we are going to revisit my top four downloaded episodes of all time. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy these best of series of clips. Hi, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture. Hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. The top downloaded episode of all time was my interview with Kristen Way, a mom of two, the co-founder of the Stay Connected Book Club and wife of Mikey Way, the bassist of the band My Chemical Romance. Find out in this clip how she met her husband for the first time. We're going to switch gears now, and we are going to talk now about your love for your husband. Um, you are married to the bassist from the band My Chemical Romance and uh, <laughs> Mikey Way, and um, I'd love to hear how you both met, because I believe it was somewhere obviously in the music industry, but I'd love to hear um, you know, how that happened. Yeah, I feel like this is a story that like I get asked this a lot, but I don't think it's like many people know it for some reason. I don't know, but... We actually have a mutual friend and Mikey was staying with him and I was like, Hey, you want to go to dinner? My sister and I are free. He was like, yeah, sure. So my sister that I was living with at the time and I drove over to his house and we were like, okay, you ready? Like, let's go to dinner. So we go to dinner and he had said that his friend might be joining us, but then he was like, oh, he's not here. So we were like, okay, whatever. So we walked to dinner. We're sitting there and I didn't know, like, I knew he had a friend. I knew it was Mikey who was staying with him because he had mentioned it, but I didn't know, like, what Mikey looked like or any. I was like, cool, he plays in my chem. I don't listen to my chem. Like, that's wonderful. Right. So, okay. <laughs> so he walks up to our table. And I hear him go like, oh, hey. And he's kind of standing there talking to my friend Justin. And Justin and him are conversing. And I'm kind of at the table like, does he not see, like, we're having dinner? Why, like. This guy's just having this full-on conversation standing next to our table. What is happening? Right. So finally, Justin's like, oh, this is Mikey. Like, here, Mikey, sit with us. I'm like, why didn't you have him sit five minutes ago? Right. Like, this is so weird. Right. So he ends up sitting down with all of us. And we immediately started talking about, like, ghost hunting and Halloween and everything that we loved about, like, that kind of thing. Because they had gone on, like, a haunted ship, the Queen Mary. Oh, um, right prior and they were telling me their experiences on it <laughs> so I'm like oh my gosh this guy's really cute so we're like talking about ghosts whatever we end up going back to Justin's house watching a movie Mikey fell asleep on the couch and I'm like well <laughs> there goes that I'm not gonna get to say like goodbye maybe exchange numbers nothing I'm like okay so 
way. I'm like talking to my sister. I'm like, oh, he was really cute. She's like, yeah, he's cute, whatever. So the next day, I sent Justin a text, like not really expecting anything. But I was like, hey, you know, if Mikey needs any like friends to hang out with in LA, my sister and I are always around, you know, like we're good people. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll pass along your number. I'm like, sure you will. And I had looked and Mikey didn't have Instagram at the time. This was like 2014. He hadn't tweeted in a long time. So I was like, I can't reach out to him by myself. So this is my only option to ever be in touch with him again. Exactly. And 10 minutes later, I got a text from him. Wow. Hey, what's up? It's Mikey. Like, do you want to go out? Do you want to go to like ghost hunting? And I was like, well, you know, I would love to do that. But I it's a Sunday and I have work tomorrow. So I can't do that. But yeah, I would love to see you. So we went on like a seven hour date. And we this is I feel like people say this a lot, but we've genuinely been inseparable since that moment. I think the longest we've ever been apart is this tour that they just went on this past year. Right. Um, yeah, but prior to that, it'd been like maybe five days. He went to Japan for a little bit once to see his brother. And that was it. Like we, from that moment on, we were just like with each other every day. And crazy. That's it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I was like, it. okay, I found my person. You I don't did. know. It was just like meant to be, you know? Re- really and truly. Definitely and had that's no- pretty compatible to spend that much time together and still, you know, and then now after all these years and still be completely in love with each other. You know what I mean? And with yeah. all the touring and just all the things and, you know, that you really did find your person. And I think that's so amazing. In this next clip, learn more about what it was like for Kristen to see her husband on stage playing music in front of thousands of fans for the first time after years of not touring. With your husband being part of such an iconic band, I mean, for goodness sakes, they just sold out, what, five sold out shows at the Forum in Los Angeles. And, you know, when you first met him, he was taking a break from my chem, right? I mean, he he was not in the band. They weren't touring, things like that. So the first part of your relationship did, had nothing to do with touring, per se. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then all of a sudden this year or this past year, it's, it became like a new part of, of your lives. Um, so what was that like to meet him in that time of his life? And then all of a sudden it completely changed to this. Was that ever something that you ever thought might happen again, um, you know, since they were touring before you met and then had that break when you met him and then, you know, what it's been like this past year, was that something that ever crossed your mind that would ever be, I guess, a possibility? So for us, when we met, I think it was endearing to him that I didn't know much about their music. It wasn't anything that I listened to growing up. I obviously knew who my chemical romance was, but I had no idea who he was or like anything about them. So as I was playing music for him when we first started dating, he would play their music. And I'm like, oh, I actually know this song. I didn't know I knew this song. So even right. when they were practicing, so they did one show in 2019, their return show that was supposed to kind of kick off this whole tour before COVID happened. Um, right. He would talk to me about like the songs that they were going to play on their set list, or he would like be playing something. I'm like, oh, what song is that? He's like, you need to know these things. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Like I had to get like schooled on it a little bit, which like I said, I think he did. That was endearing for him, but it wasn't ever when we first met, like, it was still so fresh that the band had broken up that there wasn't really anything that would make me think that that was ever going to be a thing again. So for us, it was kind of just like we were living our life and he was like, you know, I, I would love to do it again someday, but it, that was the extent of the conversation. So when they did decide to get back together and did that first show, 
that was something that I had never witnessed before. I'd never seen him in that capacity. I had seen him play with his friends' bands. I'd seen him do little things here and there. I'd seen his side project, but it was more of him releasing music. It wasn't him performing. So to see all of a sudden this completely different version of my husband than I had ever been around after being together, what was it in 2019? We've been together five years at that point, five and a half years. I And I saw this side of him that I was like, Oh my gosh, like I I never knew this existed in you. Right. So that for me was pretty incredible and it was like this moment of like, whoa. <laughs> this is kind of interesting. Like there is a side to you that I don't actually know where it's being by each other's side day in and day out. You think you pretty much know everything there is to know about somebody, but in in that sense there that was just so different for us to see this confidence because he's a pretty quiet guy he's he keeps himself he's shy like I am more of the social like he's very social if he knows you but I will be the one like anyone I meet chatting it up and he'll just kind of like laugh along to what I say and he's not like that social so to see this confidence in him that isn't the way he carries himself day to day was I I still, every time I watch him on stage, I'm like, wow, like, I don't know how you do that there. You have this switch that you turn on. So that was pretty incredible. And then, yeah, going from, they literally were about to take off to Australia and Australia shut down. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, now, because, you know, we'd be away from each other a bit while he was rehearsing and everything for this run. And then it just didn't happen. And then it was kind of like a, well, was that show what we're going to get? is that all we're going to see? And then the show finally did happen and the, everything took off. And the first time I saw a huge show, we all flew to London and I mean, it was like over 30,000 people and he's up there just Mr. Confident. I'm like, I have never witnessed this. This is the coolest thing ever. So getting to be able to be a part of that will never not be an incredible feeling for me to see him in his element and have this confidence about him where he knows who he is on that stage is one of my most favorite things now. I mean, I have so many favorite things about him, but this past year, I think that seeing his love for his music in real time, not just in conversations or him showing me something from the past has been so like touching in such like a deep way. It's got us even closer, which it's the year we've spent so much time apart, but we're closer because I have an even deeper understanding now of what all of this means to him. And I got to see him shine which has been really, really, really amazing. In this next clip, you'll discover Kristen's secrets for traveling with toddlers and learn her parenting tips and hacks for traveling internationally as a family. Any parenting hacks or tips that you have to travel with toddlers? Obviously, you traveled to London with them and I'm sure lots of other places, even domestically. What are any tips you have for toddlers to keep them busy on such a long flight? Because I know there's other parents out there that are definitely wanting to tip. (laughs) Okay. So the flight to London, I was very nervous, but I ended up, normally I would do direct. I love just get, get me there. Don't make me stop and walk around an airport with my children. But I decided on our trip to London that I wanted to do a layover around dinner time because we were going to do a night flight and I wanted to kind of get to our layover and then let them run around and eat dinner and then be like, okay, we're going to put our pajamas on in the bathroom now. And then we're going to get ready for bed for this next flight. And then I just, I mean, I try my hardest to make sure they have their pillows, their like 
their little stuffed animals that they sleep with. They've got their blankets. And then we do our normal routine, which sounds crazy, but it was like, okay, we're going to play some games. We're going to color. We're going to read a book. We're going to watch something on your iPad. And then now it's time to go to bed. We're going to close our eyes. You can lay in my lap and we're going to go to sleep. And by some miracle, they went along with it. <laughs> and awesome. it was, I was like, I did it. We landed and they woke <laughs> up and they were ready for breakfast and they were just on London time. And somehow that worked. I it's also, amazing. when I'm just flying domestically, I've been trying to do like, okay, we got on the airplane. Here's a little toy. And our pediatrician when my daughter was little was like, go to the dollar store and get things they've never seen that when you land, you can dump it in the trash can. You never have to see it again, but it's entertaining. So there's like, however long the flight is, I have one new thing per hour. Now that they're a little bit older and they've got their iPads, I do lean on the iPads, but I do definitely do like, okay, we're doing sticker books right now and that's it. Or one time she also told me, you know, like your pill containers, like the days of the week, put snacks in each different one. And that's just opening and closing is entertaining them. So I just try to do things like that. That's like, look at this. You haven't seen this in a while. And just put new different things in front of them so that here's a new coloring book. Here's just pencils and paper. See what you can create. And just one thing an hour for however long the flight is. And I tell all of my girlfriends to do the same thing with their kids because it's like, okay, another hour passed. Here's something out of the magic bag. Like, yep. And it works. It's it so does. helpful. In this next podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Nicole Birkins, a clinical psychologist who specializes in holistic child therapy. We talk about how nutrition affects things like mood, attention, anxiety, and behavior. In this clip, we talk about why children should avoid added sugars and synthetic food dyes, as well as why iron is so important for optimal brain development and function. Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yes, me too. Me too. I love um, you know, all the things that I've learned from you on let's say your social media and whatnot. And I'd love to talk today about how nutrition affects things like mood, behavior, and 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 other things that we may not even think about, even things like body odor. Um, and I know you're you're kind of an expert in that, you know, part of the field. So um I'm excited to dig in if you are. Absolutely. I think it's an area that people are interested in and don't often hear about. And there's so much that we can do to support kids um, in this area. So yeah, let's dive in. Sure. So, you know, most of the clients that I see uh, are, are, you know, young children. And a lot of them come to me with some type of behavioral um, challenge that they're going through in school. You know, let's say, um, you know, arguing with others at school, not keeping their hands to themselves, a lot of sensory seeking, um, and even just uh, things like hyperactivity, ADHD, and, and so forth. So I've, you know, researched over the years about how the things that we eat or the things that our kids eat could affect some of those behaviors. Is that true? And, and why does that happen? It's absolutely true. And that's not just an opinion or an idea. There's good research to support um, this understanding that what our kids eat and drink, what their nutrient status is, impacts how they feel and how they function, and more specifically, impacts all aspects of behavior, learning, mood, um, and really any of the kinds of specific diagnoses that kids might be given. This is true for adults too, but we're talking about kids. So 
yeah, there, there is a lot of evidence to support this in a lot of different ways. And, you know, before we get into maybe some of the specifics around that, I just want to be clear um, around an objection or a concern that some people uh, raise when we start talking about this. They say, okay, so are you saying that, you know, what a child eats causes them to have ADHD or autism or anxiety or whatever? And so let's be clear that what we're talking about here are, you know, categories of symptoms, any of these kinds of diagnoses, disorders, issues are clusters of symptoms that we give a name to. And there can be lots of contributing factors to these. So when we talk about the role of nutrition, we're talking about it as foundational for supporting kids' brain development and function. And we're talking about it as a contributing factor to behaviors and these other kinds of issues. We're not saying that diet or nutrient status alone is what causes a child to have these issues or not have these issues. Human beings are way more complex than that. We know from the research there's a significant interplay between genetic predisposition and environmental factors, lots of environmental factors. Food is just one of them. And so I just like to raise that right out of the gate to sort of help people relax into this idea and not maybe get stuck Um, you know, in the black and white of, well, you know, you're saying this is what causes or doesn't cause it. So hopefully that's helpful to frame this up. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. We are very complex and there is a lot of factors that are involved, you know, obviously with coming with the diagnosis and whatnot. Right. Um, So can you go into a little bit about why, you know, nutrition is important, especially with brain function, especially when kids are, are little and their brains are still growing and, you know, what, what we put in our mouths matter. Absolutely. You know, I say that to parents all the time. What we feed our kids does matter. And it matters not just for their physical growth, which is, I think, what most parents are more familiar with thinking about nutrition and food in that realm, right? Oh, is my child eating enough to grow? When we go see the pediatrician, are they staying on the growth chart? Are they physically growing? Are they at an acceptable weight? Are they, you know, at a weight that's too high or too low? So I think that people are familiar with thinking about food in that realm. But when we start to think about food and nutrition in the realm of brain function and mental health, it's just as important. Um, Because kids, especially, if we think about that first five years of life, are in an incredibly rapid phase of brain development and brain growth. And then even through the adolescent and young adult years, lots of brain development, brain changes happening, and nutrient status and nutrition is a key piece of that. So what we're feeding our kids or not feeding our kids matters from the standpoint of supporting all of that important neurological growth and development. So on a basic level, we want to be thinking about things like nutrient status. Is a child taking in enough of the key nutrients that they need to support brain growth, brain development, brain function. And one of the clearest examples of that for people who are kind of skeptical about this idea of nutrition or food impacting kids' brain function, one of the most well-researched, well-established nutrient connections is around the mineral iron. And what we know is that kids who are iron deficient, kids who have suboptimal levels of iron in their diet, in their body, 
end up with cognitive impairment. In fact, the more iron deficient they are, and kids who are very malnourished and very iron deficient end up with significant cognitive impairment and brain development that is significantly different from what the norm would be. And so that's one example um, of where we know that specific nutrient status and food intake impacts that. Um, If we take that example of iron a little bit further, we look at the research that's been done on iron and ADHD and ADHD symptoms. Um, And we know that kids who have suboptimal iron levels tend to have more of those symptoms. Kids who are diagnosed with ADHD, when we look at their levels, tend to be lower in that. And so when we start to understand some of these connections, it helps us to see that there's more that we need to be looking at here beyond just behavioral checklists and that we really do need to be thinking about what is going into our kids' bodies throughout the day. Are they getting enough of what they need for optimal brain function? And on the flip side, are they perhaps getting too much of things that have ingredients or, or um, things that can cause issues for them? And an example of that would be things like a diet that's very high in added sugars. We know that the connection between high sugar intake and mental health issues and developmental issues in kids is significant. Um, things like Uh, added dyes, chemical preservatives, things like that, which have been linked in the research literature to an increased risk of mental health symptoms, behavioral symptoms. So we're looking at what's going in our kids' mouths, not only from the standpoint of are they getting enough of certain things, but also are are they taking in certain things that are maybe problematic for them? It's both. In this next clip, Dr. Nicole and I talk about what types of food to avoid and the difference between whole foods and processed foods. A good rule of thumb, because really it does not need to be complicated. I think we have so overcomplicated uh, nutrition and food, and you know that's why people just throw their hands up and go, this is too complicated. And sometimes on the flip side, we use the this is too complicated or too hard Um, sort of line as an excuse because we just don't want to face it and think about it for ourselves. And that's the tricky part of all this is to address food stuff with our kids requires us to take a look at our own food stuff, which can be mired in our own childhood history and adult history of our own health, our own eating patterns, our own just everything, right? And so this is is a, a tricky topic in that way. But really from a nutrition standpoint, there's some basics that are important. And to use your example with the fruit snacks, that's a great example of what we would call an ultra processed food. We sort of have a couple categories of food. And this is just a good basic way for parents to understand this and think about it when they're doing their shopping. Um, We've got whole foods, which is kind of the term that we use, not not the grocery store that takes all, you know, an exorbitant (laughs) amount of uh, money to shop at, but whole foods, meaning foods in their natural form, Uh, an apple, um, you know, um, carrot, something that is as you would find it in nature, an almond, okay, that's a whole food. There's not added ingredients or things to make it into what it is. It just naturally is what it is. Then we've got the category of processed foods, which are things that we've done something to in order to create the food product. Now, 
there's two, there's different levels of processing. Pretty much, you know, lots of food that we buy and use is processed in some way. It's been, you know, gone through a factory, even if it doesn't have stuff added to it. You know, even things that are organic packaged foods, they're processed. Flour is processed because, you know, we don't eat the grain whole, okay? The problem is when we get into the category of ultra processed foods, ultra processed foods are heavily processed foods. These are things that we haven't just mechanically done something to them. We've also added a lot of stabilizing preservative chemicals, dyes, added sweeteners, these kinds of things. Um, You know it's an ultra-processed food when you turn the package over, look at the label, and the ingredient list is quite long, and you're reading through it, and there are things on there that you would not cook with in your home. In this next clip, we talk about what elimination diets to try why it's worth trying them, and how and where to begin. A pushback I get a lot from parents, as you mentioned earlier and alluded to, is that it's too hard. And what Mm -hmm. I'm saying with that is that I've read so many articles on dairy and gluten Mm -hmm. um, being contributors and factors to possible um, behaviors and uh, characteristics of, let's say, something like ADHD, and I've had a lot of kids, like I said, on my on my client roster over the years with ADHD and autism specifically. And looking at that, and I've looked at the articles, and I've sent them to the parents saying, just check this out. And you know, if you avoid gluten and if you avoid dairy, you know, you might see some symptoms minimize a little bit or mm-hmm. get better. And when I've seen my clients actually do it, I it's right there. Like it, it is better. It doesn't make maybe make the diagnosis go away, but the yes. symptoms are better. It's minimized. But so many parents come to me and say, oh, that's just too hard. I can't mm-hmm. have a gluten-free diet. Um, you know, I, I don't want my child to suffer and not have a good childhood, not be able to eat things at a birthday party or whatever the case mm-hmm. is. And they think that that's worse. But I'm thinking, well, what's what's worse? You know, you, you're, you're here because you're trying to get help for your child's behavior because that seems unmanageable, but yet you don't want to change their yeah. diet, which could help you, right? So right. what what do you what do you tell parents that push back like that and say it's just too hard even though they know it could work? That's right. Yeah, because then even even knowing it could work is important because there's good research behind this now. Doesn't mean for every kid that it's the magic solution, but it does mean that for a lot of kids, particularly our neurodivergent kids, um those kinds of things are an issue and it often is worth at least a trial of an elimination diet to see how they do. But the obstacles around that really primarily fall in the camp of the parents. Um, and, you know, for a lot of reasons, again, our own histories, our own sense of overwhelm, our own, you know, whatever. Sometimes we're scared to try something like that with our child because we're scared to get our hopes up that things could really improve and we don't want to be disappointed if they if it doesn't work, you know? So right. there's so many... Um, emotional reasons why parents put up obstacles to that. But to your point, what I share with parents is, look, you're concerned, you're saying you're concerned about your child feeling deprived, you know, not being able to have something at a birthday party or whatever. But you're also saying that your child can't make friends, is in trouble in school all the time, is anxious, you know, up the wazoo, um, you know, as things are now. So what, what's the bigger issue there, right? Like right, right. now your kid's not even make, able to get invited to a birthday party, you know, because they're having such struggles. And so sometimes it's just really doing some digging and helping to reframe that. Like, 
I hear you're really struggling thinking about how to implement this. Let's kind of walk through what's going on there. Because often there's two big pieces. The first is the own, our own emotional barriers that we put in the way, our own feelings of um, overwhelm or being afraid to hope that something would improve or whatever it might be. The other is often a practical one around this feels super overwhelming because I don't understand, I don't have enough information about how to do this. And so I think that's a big piece of it is giving parents resources, um, you know, step-by-step walking them through. That's one of the things that we do, um, you know, at, at our clinic is help them understand, here's how you're going to do this. Here's what it means to be on a gluten-free diet. Um, we're not talking about 20 years ago, where the only way to have your family or kid on a gluten-free diet was to basically spend all day in the kitchen making your own stuff. We've come a long way with this. Um, there are tons of options now. It's not as difficult as parents think once they have the information and kind of are walked through, here's what that would look like. The other piece to that is that you don't have to do it all at once. Depending on how severely a kid is struggling, sometimes, you know, parents decide and it makes really good sense to just say, okay, we are all in, we are doing this, like we are at a point where we have got to have some kind of major change and intervention and you do it all at once. Other families say, you know what, we're going to ease into this. We're going to start shifting just towards a more nutrient dense diet overall. We're going to start incorporating more nutrient dense things in. Then we're going to slowly start making some swaps for some of our child's favorite snacks or whatever to gluten-free options. And you can ease in that way too. And sometimes that's a helpful way for people to realize that, oh, I can do this. I'm not going to be totally incompetent with this. And when people feel like, okay, I'm going to be able to handle this, they tend to be more open to implementing it. In this next clip, we talk about what to do if your child pushes back on the foods you prepare. What if the child pushes back? I think there's a lot of fear with parents and even myself included when I try new things with my kids is what if they are going to starve? What if they completely refuse to eat this new diet because they're so used to and maybe almost have that addiction to some of those types of foods and ingredients, right? And they push back and they don't eat it and they're afraid they're going to starve. And so they end up buckling and saying, okay, fine, here's your, you know, Mm -hmm. snacks and chicken nuggets and all the things, right? Um, How do we stay strong as parents and say that they're going to be okay? And I mean, I I know I've talked to other nutritionists in the past, you know, of how to get picky kids to eat and things like that on previous episodes. And they have some great tips. And I I even have some play-based tips that I've shared about how to get kids to eat. But from your perspective, how do we, like I said, stay strong as parents when that happens? And maybe if you have any tips of, you know, starting slow, taking it, you know, maybe one item at a time, one meal at a time, one day at a time on how to get kids to eat, especially if they push back, because I'm sure they will. Right. Their kids, of course they will. It's kind of their job. And, you know, depending on the stage of development they're in, uh, it could be more or less of a forceful resistance, depending. So I think the first thing is mindset around that. And boy, we have a lot of parents that are upside down and backwards for a lot of good reasons about, um, you know, just the emotions of feeding kids. Um, kids are going to push back on lots of things. It's our job to decide what's going to be served and when. It's the kid's job to decide whether they're going to eat and how much. And when we stay in those roles, and that's really from Ellen Satter's work on the division of feeding responsibilities. You've probably covered that you know, in various ways on your show, I've done several podcast episodes of my own about that. 
But when we stay in those roles, that's important. Where we get mixed up is we start to take on too much of our child's emotion and too much of their job of, you know, whether they're going to eat and how much. And so when we can stay in the realm of, okay, this is what's being served and this is when, and now my kid gets to decide, that's important. It's important for all kids. It's important for kids that we might call picky eaters. And it's even important if you have a child with a feeding disorder or a diagnosed feeding problem, although there are different ways that we're going to approach what we feed them and when, if your child truly has a diagnosed feeding disorder, which is not the majority of kids who have picky eating. Most kids are picky eaters because they and their parents early on in their development got into this emotion-fueled cycle um, of dysregulation around eating, right? And so parents now feel like, oh, you know, what am I going to do? And it's such an issue and I'm overwhelmed and, you know, whatever. So um, this, this is common. So I think the first thing is mindset of realizing that, okay, this happens a lot of the time. You know, and, and there are tools for dealing with this. This is not a catastrophe. And most of it is you as the parent regulating your own emotions around it and not getting dysregulated or worked up yourself when your child is pushing back or doesn't like something or whatever. So th- that mindset piece and managing our own emotions is part one. Part two is our own modeling. I can't tell you the number of parents who complain to me about their kids not eating enough veggies, for example. And I say, well, tell me about your eating of veggies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or my kid drinks soda pop too. You know, my kid doesn't drink enough water as they're sitting at the table in my office drinking a big gulp of Dr. Pepper, right? No judgment. Right. Like drink whatever you want to eat, eat whatever you want to eat. However, when it comes to kids, they are looking to us as a model. And that is profoundly more important than what we tell them. And we have studies that show this. We have studies that show that in households where parents eat more vegetables, kids eat more vegetables. Right. So we need to be focused on our own modeling and realize that that's powerful. The third piece is exposure. Every meal, every snack is an opportunity for building comfortability in our kids around different foods, whether they eat them or not. So this idea of, okay, you're having your goldfish crackers and I'm putting cucumber slices, you know, uh, right. on the side of the plate with it. Well, I don't want them. Would it? You just say, that's okay. You don't have to eat them. There they are. Right. And you keep exposing. Absolutely. You get them in the kitchen with you. You take them to the store. You let them play with foods. We get so focused on the chewing and swallowing part of it that we skip over the entire first important piece of that, which is exposing them and building their comfortability around different smells, textures, what things look like. As kids get more exposure it builds comfortability, reduces their anxiety, which reduces their um, resistance to it. So we've got to stay the course with exposure, even when they're not eating it. And talking about our values around that, you know, it's important that we have veggies with our dinner. Here they are. You don't have to eat them. You know, making sure that there's always something at a meal that a kid will eat, but not short order cooking. This is another pattern that gets so energy draining and overwhelming for parents. Um, Oh, yeah. You're short order cooking. That's not helpful to you and it's not helpful to your kid. So if that's what's going on, I really encourage you to get some um, support and intervention around that for yourself to get out of that pattern 
Um, you know, because we do have this fear that, oh my gosh, if we don't give them what they want, they're going to hate us. They're going to, um, you know, they're, they're never going to eat, you know, all of these things, uh, the vast majority of which are unfounded for the vast majority of kids. And yeah. so, you know, it's important to build in family meal times where here's what's being served. There's always something on the table the child will eat, but if the rest of it they don't, then they don't. But you're exposing them and you're saying, this is what we're modeling. This is what's important um, to us uh, around how we fuel our bodies. Um, and so, you know, th- there's lots more around that, but I think that um, saying, that, well, we can't feed our kids better uh, because, you know, they don't want to. Well, we could say that about lots of things with parenting, and yes. yet we make our kids do all kinds of things they don't want to do, right? Yes. They don't want to brush their teeth. They don't, you know, they don't want to wear underwear when they leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to whatever, right? And and we figure that out. And yet there's this weird thing when it comes to food. It's like, oh, you know, I just have to leave them on their diet of mac and cheese and chicken nuggets because, you know, that's just all they'll do. And so I just really encourage parents to unpack their own thoughts and feelings around that and and to look at how to move forward in that area. In this last clip, Dr. Nicole and I discuss how parents can holistically help children's symptoms and behaviors nutritionally without medication. Whether or not you decide to go down the medication route, looking at physiological pieces is key. Um, So at a basic level, if a child is having ADHD symptoms and medications being recommended, you know, before looking at medication, a, a provider should be doing something basic like checking the child's iron level to make sure that's not deficient. Because we know if iron isn't in the optimal range, kids are much more likely to have those symptoms. The other thing, and this is not nutrition focused, but key that every provider should be screening for and looking at before making a diagnosis or medication recommendation is the child's sleep. We know that 25 to 40% of kids who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD actually have an undiagnosed, untreated sleep issue. So there are several basics, several other things that should be looked at when a child's having these symptoms. You know, as you mentioned, what's going on with the child's diet? Let's do a little blood work. Um, Always makes good sense to layer in these interventions and to start with these brain and body foundations first. And then if you're doing those things and you're not getting the improvement that, um, that you need or, or you know, wanting to, to have there, then you look at layering something like medication or more intensive you know, interventions or whatever on top of that. Because even for kids who take medication um, and have benefit from medication for something like ADHD or, or you know, pick your diagnosis, anxiety, you know, autism, whatever – medications work better and kids need lower doses to get the same effectiveness when we're addressing these physical foundations of things like nutrition, sleep, movement, that kind of stuff. So there's every reason to look at building a foundation with these kinds of things first or alongside of medication um, because it really does make an impact whether you end up using a prescription or not. For this next episode, I am sharing clips from my interview with Sterna Sousa, a parenting coach and mom of four, about how to raise emotionally intelligent children and how to break toxic emotional multi-generational patterns. So what practical takeaways and tips do you have for parents 
to be able to do that themselves? What, what work do they have to put in to be emotionally intelligent in order to then transfer it onto their children? I think the number one thing we need as parents is self-awareness. And it's very hard to gain that self-awareness like on the heated moments. And we all have those moments, we're human, and we all have these moments where we feel the blood rushing through our body, we're feeling frustrated. It's like we feel kind of like our heart beating and we feel that we're about to you know, approach our child in a ways that we know we're gonna regret later and we wish we didn't. So it's very hard to wait for those moments and say, hold on, like, how do I not have those type of moments? So I say the first key is to gain self-awareness throughout our entire day, not just wait till we have those moments, right? So keep checking in with ourselves. And something very practical that we can do like right now, any day is put an alarm on your cell phone. It could be once a day, twice a day, three times a day, as many times as you'd like. And when that alarm rings, pause, check in with yourself. How am I feeling right now? And oftentimes when I do this, I'm just like, oh my God, I feel so rushed. I feel like I need to, yeah, <laughs> I need to rush through this feel. right now. Like, oh my God, like my nervous system is like on a high. And like, it really makes you become more aware of like how your nervous system is doing and maybe wow. what are the needs you need. And if you really want to start this and like gain a lot of awareness, you can do the alarms at the most hectic times of your day. So dinner time, your phone is going to ring. You're going to be like, okay check-in, right? So not, oh, I need to stop myself when I'm heated. Like just to check in and ask yourself like, whew, okay, that alarm just ran off. Oh my God, how am I feeling? I'm like starving right now. You know, I'm hungry. You know what? I'm going to grab something to eat, right? Like this is what I need. And I'm gaining self-awareness on my needs versus letting them just pile up, go, go, go. And then exploding on your child, which is what happens because we aren't okay in our own body. So the more we have those alarms on our phone, and this is just one example of many that we can do different things, but the more we have these alarms and every day they're going to ring, we're going to check in with ourselves, And all we need to do is take a deep breath. And this already gives our body the practice of how it feels before the deep breath and after the deep breath, right? So the alarm goes on. I'm going to take a deep breath. What's going on in my body right now? What do I need? Oh, maybe I need a couple more deep breaths. You know, I feel my system is, is very heightened right now. So you're going to take some deep breaths and that's all we need to do to just notice how does it feel after these deep breaths so that when you're in these heated moments, your body already has practiced taking the deep breaths because it's very hard to just be on that moment and like take a deep breath and wait for those moments to gain that practice. So when we do it throughout our day, then we remember that it's right there. Our breath is right there. We can turn back to that breath at any moment but we need that practice and we, we can practice logically with our brain that's on and we're not <laughs> flooded by emotions when we're th going through our day so that on those moments, eventually with a lot of practice, we can have that more gained, you know, gain self-awareness and be like, wow, like I really need a moment. Like I'm going to go to the bathroom and put some water on my face or I'm going to go drink a cup of water. or I'm feeling hungry, you know, and, wow. and kind of working on ourselves in that way. In this next clip, we discuss the importance of daily check-ins, repairing our past, and building our relationship with ourself so we can show up better for our child. In your opinion, in your work, um, how do parents create a healthy relationship with their child? What steps do they need to take? 
It's a really interesting question, Dr. Kim, because huh, what I've noticed through my journey is that the most important relationship we have, yes, it's with our child, but there's even something more underneath that. And it's the relationship we have with our own self. You know, yes. if we have, you know, if we're good in our own self, we are, you know, when we do those check-ins, we're going to know how we're holding. We're going to see, right? We're going to be like, hey, like, I, 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 it's insane. I'm putting an alarm every day. And every single day of my life, I feel rushed. I feel anxious. I feel worried. I feel like, what's going on here? I might need to set more boundaries and protect the relationship I have with my own self. Absolutely. So the, these things might take place and you might realize like, you need to be protecting your own self and really building that relationship with our own self so that we can show up for our child, our own best self. And then that way the relationship is healthy, right? So let's say a, a small example. I'm going to give you an example in regards to myself, right? So let's say I grew up, I was not allowed to say no, right? I couldn't say no to my parent because that would mean that I would be yelled at, punished, and all sorts of things. Right. So here I am as a parent. Now, I'm not saying no to things in my life, right? So the relationship I have with myself is very disconnected because I'm not honoring myself. I'm not showing up for myself in the way that I need to be. Um, and here my child is telling me no. And so suddenly, because I don't have that in my life, I will try to shut that down in my child as well, because how dare you say no, right? I don't say no, I don't get to say no. And I'm living a unhealthy relationship with my own body. I don't get to protect and have my own personal boundaries. And so I then do the same for my child versus understanding that, hey, sometimes it's actually a healthy thing to say no. And it's important to say no, because we want to honor the relationship with our own self and how we feel. And so if a parent feels that way, then when their child says no, then they might get curious and they might have a conversation about it. And you will just approach it in a different way because you understand it. You're doing that for yourself too. In this last clip, we talk about what happens when we leave our emotional challenges unaddressed. Basically, a lot of us, I find, grew up in homes where we were invalidated. So a lot of us heard things like, oh, don't be silly. There's nothing to worry about. Don't worry. There's nothing to be sad about. And so we kind of have this belief that, you know, emotions come and they go. And they just, you know, we move on. We get distracted. We move on with things. And that's just not how emotions work in the body. Emotions is basically, you know, in the word, we have what it is. It's basically E and then motions, right? Energy and motion through our body. And those emotions, when they come into our body, they move through our body. And unless we have the space to actually process and express our emotions, they will stay in our body. This energy won't just leave the body. They stay in our body. And when we're young and we grow up with parents who invalidate us and we're, you know, being rushed to school and rushed into this. And then as teenagers, we have, you know, we have to get a job and we're fast paced living and all these emotions get built up and kind of piled up over the years from all these t moments where nobody was there to give us empathy or to hear us out and to validate us. So all these emotions get piled up. And then we have you know, a where we become a parent and then our child 
starts to cry, right? And suddenly our entire body is so triggered and we can't hear them cry. And that is because it's awakening those past tears we had that we need to stuff into our body. And it's kind of like coming out and saying, hey, hear me out. I also have tears in my body that were suppressed. Hear me out, right? You're all, you are, you're, there's also emotions in, in our body and it's just too painful to go there. So we want to just shut it down, shut it down, shut down our child, shut down how we're feeling and move on. Now, these emotions don't just go away. And Dr. Kim, you're a doctor and I, I wonder how you feel about this, but I've done a lot of literature around this, how emotions that get suppressed over the years can actually that that is what can sometimes create depression, right? It's like depressed emotions and all sorts of illnesses in the body because those emotions, the energy is in the body. Yes. So they don't just disappear, you know? No. And if anything, they manifest over time. In my practice and experience, uh, you know, sometimes I've even seen parents start resenting being a parent. They don't resent mm. their child. They love their child, but they resent you know, the emotionality of their children. And like you said, they, they start suppressing the emotionality in their children and they don't validate their emotions. And then the children child ends up with, let's say anxiety, depression, acting out in school, you know, failing grades, getting in fights, whatever the case may be. And then the parent comes to me, you know, being a child play therapist and the, the parent comes to me saying, I don't know what's wrong with my child. They just don't know how to handle their emotions. And so most of my work is sometimes done helping the parent identify what you were just speaking about, and then also helping them get to a place where they can uh, have that awareness that that's what's happening. And then in order to uh, almost allow their child uh, or give them permission, rather, to have those emotions. Um, and then it's, 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 it's working with both the parent and the child at the same time. The last top downloaded podcast episode we are highlighting today is with Dr. Julie Hanks, a licensed psychotherapist. We talk about child sexuality and what behaviors are typical and what behaviors are not. So in your experience, what sexual behaviors are typical for young children? It really depends on the age, uh, but it's for very young children, it's normal to explore uh, their vagina, their vulva, their penis, their scrotum, like it, and it's important to use accurate words to, to right. describe their parts, right? So, um, the, you know, they, they will touch, they'll kind of show, and it's not, it's curiosity, it's not necessarily like they're being sexual, right? Like, it's right. just more curiosity. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's very normal for little kids and big kids to to touch themselves and self-stimulate and it doesn't mean something's wrong. In this next clip, Dr. Julie and I talk about the warning signs of abnormal childhood sexual behavior. It's important for for parents to watch out for age inappropriate language that they're using. So just to say, oh, I'll show you mine if you show me yours, you know, that but if they're using adult or, you know, later teenage sexual language and they're doing it in a um I'm trying to think of an example, but but in a sexual way, right? Instead right. of just exploring, then for for young elementary school, you you might think, okay, have they been exposed to something that is not appropriate or 
So you want to watch for age inappropriate language and what's their intent is, are they just curious or are they acting out a sexual behavior that they have seen or someone has done to them? And so that's really the question that you want to ask at that point. Right, exactly. And in the research that I've done too, is, you know, not just the language they're using, but if they're wanting to perform a sexual act that is more adult-like, um, mm-hmm. self-stimulating, not in private, but also, like you said, in, in public, or mm-hmm. um, or doing it with, with people that aren't the same age peers as them. Let's say they're right. exploring with a middle schooler and they're at elementary school age or, or whatnot. Is that something that mm-hmm. you agree in, in your research too, in your practice? Totally agree with that. Yeah. The age, if, if they're, are they peers? If they're not peers, then that's something to look into. If, if they're doing that with a child who's a lot younger or a child who's a lot older, um, you know, within a year or so, because developmentally, I mean, there's a big difference between a 10 year old and a six year old. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so as long as, so we're looking for the power the power dynamics is one person in a one up position or are they in an equal power structure? In this next clip, we discuss age appropriate ways a parent can teach sexuality to their child. What advice do you have that parents can, can lean on to, to know how they can model it for their own children? Yeah. Start the conversation at birth about bodies, about, um, their genitals, about periods. If, you're, if your child walks in and was like, oh my gosh, you're bleeding, mom. And you're like, oh, no, every, it's just once you become a little bit older, women's bodies bleed once a month and it does, it, there's nothing wrong. It means I'm not growing a baby. And you just make it normal conversation. So bodies and, and reproductive organs and processes are just normal. Also, it's important to talk about relationships, uh, consent, that it's not okay for someone to touch your body without your permission and vice versa. And also talk about relationship skills. We use our bodies to show that we love people. Like I give you a hug and that shows I love you. Um, You give grandma a kiss on her cheek and that shows you love grandma. We use our bodies Mm -hmm. and explain, you know, as you grow up, You'll use your body in a, in more and more ways to show love and connection with people. And so having that ongoing conversation that ties it to relationship instead of just this separate, like, sexual thing over here, that it's part of life, it's part of relationships, and it's part of showing uh, that you love someone. And so sh- teaching sexuality in the context of healthy relationship and relationship skills, I think is really, really crucial. In this last clip, Dr. Julie and I talk about how we as parents can respond to and protect our kids from inappropriate sexuality online. When is that appropriate to shield them from some sexual behaviors that we know that developmentally they're just not ready for? I think that is our job at all, you know, until they're an adult, right? In my home, uh, we have a rule of no unrestricted internet access until you're 18. Okay. Like you just, you, there's passwords, there are blocks, there are, you know, so it's our job to do everything we can to help them have sexual uh, information when it's appropriate. And 
to be able to process that information in a in a way that makes sense to them and isn't scary or isn't um, damaging somehow. So I think that is that is a huge job of modern parenting is shielding our child from uh, age inappropriate sexual images and information. So I'm I think that's so important. Uh, And it's, it's a hard thing to do because, you know, friends will, oh, look at this, you know, so you you can only do so much. Um, But I, I think it's important to encourage kids to say, you know, if you see something that's confusing, or that just doesn't feel right, or that has to do with people's, you know, private areas, or you can come and talk to me and we can, I'll help you with that. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes if you see something and you're, it's scary or you don't know what's going on, it's important to talk about it so it doesn't just kind of sit inside of you and, and make you feel bad. Exactly. Keeping those lines of communication are so important, right? To mm-hmm. just letting them know that you're there, uh, you know, whether they, and just knowing that they can trust you. Uh, yeah, and you're not going to freak out. You're not going to yes. be like, "Oh my gosh, you saw, you saw some erotic, you know, whatever." <laughs> and and it's just like, okay, this is going to happen. It's so. It's how are you going to deal with it? And our kids are likely going to be exposed before we think they're ready. And yes. so, knowing how to calm ourselves down again and how to respond, like, okay, yeah. So, t- what did what did you see? What what did you think about that? How did you feel? Mm-hmm. Can I share, you know, can I share what was happening and why and whatever, you know, right. and having and not not reacting. I think that's the, the key. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed some of my favorite clips from my top four downloaded episodes. Please remember to leave a review and tell a friend. I have a lot of new episodes lined up for you that I think you are going to love. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first. Then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com.